Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to episode 100.5 or 100 and a half, where I'm going to answer the remaining questions that we received for the 100th episode that were not necessarily related to uh, the topics that we were talking about. So the questions that I have here are more of a Sharia nature and, you know, advice, life advice and my thoughts on certain topics. So I'm going to answer those questions here. So first of all, before I do that, I want to thank my wife, Farida for doing and agreeing to do the 100th episode. Uh, we got a lot of good feedback, alhamdulillah. I'm so happy that and thrilled that we did it together. It was an experience. It was something new for us to do that together. I enjoyed it. I hope everyone else enjoyed it. I hope that we can bring her back uh, for some more, inshallah. And as um, uh, in general, I hope that you all enjoyed the 100th episode to, to get to know me a little bit more and why uh, I'm doing the things that I do. That being said, without further ado and in no uh, order whatsoever, these are the questions. I'm not going to read the questions because some of them are, are kind of long. I'm gonna, I'm, I might summarize them, but hopefully if you're one of the people that asked the questions, you'll know what I'm referring to. The first question I have is somebody who uh, dealt with evil spirits, bad dreams, evil spirits, engaged in uh, ruqya uh, or in, engaged in you know Quranic recitation that would be read upon a person that might be experiencing something like that. And uh, the person, the questioner asks in general, uh, she wants to know how to protect herself against bad spirits in general and envy and all of that. So general protection, first of all, it's very important to understand that all of that jinn stuff is very weak and very uh, ultimately inconsequential. The, the, the jinn do not have any power uh, the way people think. Uh, Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, inna kayda shaytani that the machinations of Satan and then Satan's minions, by extension, the jinn, etc., very weak, very weak over the believer. What does that mean? That means that the smallest effort from us to repel any of that stuff uh, is very strong. What are the tools that we have? Uh, reciting ayat al-kursi 11 times per day, making sure that we are in a state of wudu, making most of the time, making sure that we sleep on a state of wudu, uh, reciting the dua that are and the Quranic verses that are recited before sleep. Again, ayat al-kursi, akhlas, qulaadu rabb al-falaq, qulaadu rabb al-nas, three times each. Subhanallah, alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar, 33 times each, so on and so forth. Those little things that we do will repel. There, there, there is no power of, there's la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Only Allah Ta'ala has power and ability. So if somebody, usually when people think that they're being... Uh, influenced by that kind of stuff, usually it's something else. It does exist, but it's very, very, very rare. If you feel that you're susceptible, look at those simple tools that you have in the sunnah arsenal, 
you'll be fine, inshallah. Another questioner uh, is asking about relations between guys and girls and that how people are changing their views about this and engaging in acts that are not necessarily the sexual act itself but other type of physical acts and arguing that that's permissible what is prohibited is the, the sexual act outside of marriage that is so the questioner is asking you know how to address that well Allah Ta'ala says zina. You know, do not even approach or come near to illicit sexual activity so meaning all of the things that will lead to it, all of what we call in, in, in the language of the Sharia, the muqaddimat, all of the introductory things that can lead to the act itself. So any type of you know, physical touch or uh, you know, intimacy, uh, even if it's not the sexual act itself, for people that are outside of the marriage bond, uh, that is considered haram. For obvious reasons, because, because it's a slippery slope. It's hard to, to turn yourself back from that. And Allah Ta'ala has uh, given us clear instructions that one of the signs of His creation is that He has created pairs for us, women ayatihi and khalaqalakum min anfusikum azwajin, etc. The verses that we all know about marriage, etc. And that is a sacred union, or that is a sacred bond. And we want to preserve and reserve that, that conduct for the institution of marriage. If we start to experience with that outside of the institution of marriage, then marriage itself becomes diminished, and then the, the lines become blur, blurred between non-marriage and marriage. Now, this is one of those things that just might be counter to the, to the dominant culture. I'm, you know, I'm aware of that, but our rules are our rules, set forth clearly in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So, وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا الزِّنَةً how can I help myself to quit smoking? I've thought a lot about it, but I couldn't find a solution for it. And with the stress of work, I get to smoke more and more. Well, there are two, you know, with addiction, there are two issues. One is the chemical addiction. If, you know, you're smoking cigarettes, for example, that, that tends to be where the chemical addiction is. It's not just the nicotine, but it's also the other added substances to cigarettes and the paper and the processing of that tobacco that creates the, the, the chemical need and the chemical bind between you and that substance. And that's where the addiction comes from. So, you know, n no, there's no magic wand for that. You have, to, you have to deal with that chemically as well, whether it's, you know, the patch, the gum, things like that, alternatives to reduce your dependency on the substance. Uh, and that's just a chemical thing that's happening in your body. And inshallah, you know, you have the fortitude to, to do it, inshallah. Uh, you have to have that inner strength, but you also have to keep in mind that that will require decoupling the, the, the need for that substance, for that chemical substance. So there's a chemistry that's involved in your body wanting and craving that, and you're feeding it, so we want to reduce that, and there are programs to do that. So th that's number one, is you have to seek out those programs. Number two, it's, it's like the act. You know, I'm used to it, I'm stressed, stressed, I just grab a cigarette, and, you know, I go for a smoke. Or if uh, you're in the Middle East, for example, you know you can smoke almost anywhere, unfortunately. So it's easier. It's more. It's more your coworkers are doing it, etc. So you have to, f you have to f train your body not to go for that, that act of you know putting something in your mouth. I, I met a man once who you know who had been smoking cigarettes for 40, 50 years, and his way of addressing that second part is he would start to carry a tasbih with him. And then, you know, so his fingers were always fidgeting with the tasbih 
not 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 going for the cigarette, opening the you know getting the cigarette, putting it in and lighting it, and then his hands were not were used to that. So now he engages hands in something else, even if he didn't necessarily make dhikr on the tasbih, but it was sort of a step in the right direction. Some people will use a stress ball, you know, or one of those um, I can't remember I don't know what they're called, but you know the thing that you clamp down with your with your for your hand exercises. You're going to need to retrain those mannerisms because you're you're used to that to that act. So the chemical thing, the chemical dependency requires a chemical solution, and that I would go as far as to say that's almost with any form of addiction. Plus, you want to develop new physical habits that will replace, you know, the fidget, you, you, you'll start to fidget essentially. So you want to occupy yourself with something that is uh, a replacement. Now, that being said, on top of all of that, I should have said maybe in the beginning, inshallah, you just have the deep intention which obviously I know you do because you asked the question, and ask Allah Ta'ala sincerely for help. Only Allah Ta'ala will come to your assistance and inshallah Allah will give you tawfiq. It will, it will require inner strength, first and foremost, because all of these things you can engage in, but then you can cave in because of the, the structure uh, around you. Ask Allah Ta'ala sincerely, He will come to your assistance. How do we handle the stress, stresses in life in synchronizing with God's will? And what could you advise us of doing Fulfilling things that we can do that does not come across being faithful. That does not come across being a faithful Muslim. Okay, well, the stresses in life, which you have to understand, is that we want all sorts of things, but only what Allah allows happens, and that's that's the lesson right there. So, when we uh, when we try to get something and we just keep coming up against this resistance. At some point, we have to remind ourselves, you know, maybe Allah Ta'ala does not want this for us. And then you have to sort of let, relinquish that and go another path. That's where mo- what most people don't do. Most people, they just keep pounding away at the resistance. Or they push harder. And they think that that's somehow the key to success, or that's the right way. You know, life should be easier than that. It's easier because you follow what Allah Ta'ala has facilitated in front of you. I don't mean lazy. You, you have to work very hard, you have to be very aggressive, you have to be very shrewd, you have to exert all human, you know, all your cells in your body have to be employed for the task at hand. That's what ihsan is, that's what excellence is. So I'm not talking about being lazy. But if you try to do something over and over again and it's not happening, what, what do we say in Islam? We say there's no tawfiq, meaning Allah Ta'ala has not facilitated that. Let it go and move on to something else. That's how you, you submit to Allah Ta'ala's will. What everyone does, it, what most people don't get, is that we are submitting to Allah's will, whether we're aware of it or not. So it's not like I'm saying something new, because you, you, know, you can't be taller than, than you are, or shorter than you are. I mean, there are certain constraints that you've been given. You are complying with Allah Ta'ala's will just by being you. But most people are not aware of that. And then they go counter. They go counter. Think of like a tree in a strong wind. And the tree has firm roots, so inshallah we have firm roots by establishing and connecting to our first principles. But when the, when the wind blows, the tree will lean a little bit. And that's what I'm talking about. Sometimes we just have to lean with the qadr that comes our way. Uh, and inshallah it doesn't break us, but then you know we can come back. Uh, but if you keep resisting that, then you live in this constant frustration. And then that constant frustration can lead to spiritual problems where, you know, why God have you done this to me and why, you know... You know, I'm mad at God and you know, people talk like that. So the stresses of life is sometimes you just have to submit to that something is not meant to be. 
and move on onto something else. That being said, also you need to increase your remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah bidhikrillahi tatma'inna al-qulub. Verily by the remembrance of Allah ta'ala is the heart quieted. That means you have to do it a lot for the heart to be quieted. Don't just hear that verse and you know, say subhanallah once and then you're still stressed. You, know, you have to say subhanallah or you know, la ilaha illallah or Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Enough times that you become, you know, you become quieted. That means you need to also learn why you're saying those things and what it is that you're saying and what those meanings are for, them, for that to have the impact on you, inshallah. So somebody has mentioned they've taken the anger course and they've learned a lot and uh, they're asking me to make short courses that get into our daily routines. Okay, inshallah. You have to understand this is... I have a small team, but this is like a one-man show. <laughs> so a lot of it falls on me. And there is life, you know, and, and that's why um, sometimes it takes me a while to get to the videos or the episodes, so I apologize. Uh, actually, as I'm recording this now, uh, I have a new course that I have finished recording. I'm not going to tell you what it is exactly yet. I need to just edit some things and put together the study guide, but I'm hoping, inshallah, very soon to announce the next course, which hopefully will satisfy the questioner for the time being, and I will try to get to more shorter courses, inshallah. How do we reconcile the hadith that says Abraham is the best of creation with the hadith about the superiority of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's of degrees. Uh, uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, uh, has his khususiyah, has his special traits. But the superiority in an absolute sense is Sayyidina Muhammad alayhi salam. There's nothing in the created world or universe, neither a created person or a creature or inanimate object. There's nothing that is in the created world that is greater than Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So that's from an absolute point of view. That doesn't negate that Allah Ta'ala praises other, uh, other anbiya. So it's about whether the statement is absolute or if it's conditional, etc. Things like that. Is it permissible, permissible to pray in clothes that have manure smeared on them? No. You, you, part of the conditions of prayer is that your clothes have to be uh, tahir, they have to be pure and without any impurities, najaset. You, are, you can have a dispensation if you have, I forgot to bring a quarter for the video, but if you're an American quarter, uh, and I'm sorry I don't have a, a quarter next to me, but you know, an American quarter is probably this big. If you have a quarter worth of najaset on your body or on your clothes, that, or less, that can be considered excusable. But if it's more than that, it's not excusable. But other than that, the general answer to the question is no. You have to change your clothes and, and purify them. Do I know of any Muslim farmhands in the U.S.? No, I am very ignorant when it comes to farm, Muslim farms in America, so I apologize. We'd have to look elsewhere. When one lives far from the mosque, at what distance does one become exempt from the Jummah? Is the distance measured by physical distance or the time and effort it takes to get there? Is it permissible to not attend Jummah because of work? Well, the last one is easier. I mean, if you're working and you can't get off work or you're in school, then there's an excuse, so that's fine. You don't have to pray Jummah. That, that missing of Jummah is excusable. When does Jummah become obligatory? When you're able to go and it's underneath the distance of travel. So if in your town or you know vicinity there is a, a mosque uh, that's the distance between you and that mosque is less than the distance of travel, then it's obligatory to pray Jummah. But if there are other extenuating circumstances, like you're working, like as the questioner mentioned, it's fine, it's excusable. What is not excusable is missing Jummah for no reason. Either you're like lazy or you just didn't go, etc. 
But if there's a reason, like I remember when we were in school, you know, uh, up until college, it was it was almost. I don't think I don't think up until college I prayed Jummah except on like holidays because you know, couldn't get out of school. And even in college, there were many times, there were many Fridays where there would be lectures on Friday in the afternoon. So th- those are excused absences from Jummah. Uh, so this person, okay, this is, I, I remember this question. This person lives in southern Turkey, working with humanitarian aid organizations focused on the Syrian war. You know, mashallah, that's an awesome, you know, Allah Ta'ala bless you and your family for all of that. I believe, if I remember correctly, this person is like, yeah, she, she converted to Islam. The question, uh, could you discuss Islamic teachings and recommendations regarding charity towards non-relations? There are many street children and garbage pickers here in southern Turkey, and of course, hundreds of thousands of refugees in the area, as well as across the border in Syria. In the larger context, there are many, many desperately poor people in the region. Who is responsible for providing charity to people such as these who do not have families? You know, so on and so forth. So... Charity is something that is blind from the point of view is that we do not distinguish when we are giving charity to who is receiving. Unlike the zakah, the zakah is a sharia stipulated alms on excess, ta- so excess money, so there are certain conditions that have to be met. When those conditions are met, a certain percentage of the, of the excess money is taken, and then that money is taken and distributed to certain categories. So it's a very, you know, on-purpose, very well-documented thing. Sadaqah, or charities, is not that. It's the opposite of that. It's you give freely. You give to people who need it. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, مَنْ لَا مِنْهُمْ Whoever is not concerned with the affairs of Muslims is not from amongst them. So in the case where you are, you know, you, Allah Ta'ala has placed you in this place for whatever reason, to help care for those people. So it's a communal obligation. All of us, we need to help our brothers and sisters, especially our brother, you know, people that, are, that carry our faith tradition, that are in need, that are displaced. Actually, displaced people are one of the categories of zakah, by the way. So in that case, you might find uh, a lot of assistance that, that zakah could be distributed to them. But let's park that fiqh issue on the side for now. We are responsible, all of us collectively, you know, we need to help these people. Uh, and each one of us can play some kind of role from raising awareness to doing the actual work to facilitating, to donating, to providing supplies, so on and so forth. So this is something that Islam is a very charitable religion. Uh, and we have this concept of sadaqah jariyah, an ongoing charity that you give and what you've given to continues to thrive and you receive the dividends from the point of view of reward essentially you know, for, forever or as long as that thing is in use, or that person is in use, or that knowledge that you left behind is in use, so on and so forth. So for us, charity is multidimensional. It's not like I just gave a buck now, and okay, alhamdulillah. No, like that dollar keeps going and growing because of what it's providing to the person that's receiving it. But the most important thing is that, is that obviously we should give to those that are the most vulnerable in society, uh, you know, children, people that are displaced, etc., and in a way that's blind, what I mean by blind is that, you know, we're indiscriminate. You know, whoever needs it, needs it, because we want to pull humanity out of poverty. So those are some of the things that come to mind. Okay, I have a, a long set of questions I was reading before I hit record. I think I answered some of these were about marriage. So I think my wife asked me some of these. So you want to get married? Yeah, we did that. So I'm going to skip over those. And um, the marriage stuff is big, so maybe we need our own 
course slash episode on that. Maybe I can coax my wife to do it with me. Okay, diplomacy. Are there any historical examples from Islamic empires, present governments, or non-Muslims that are worth reading when it comes to diplomacy? <clears throat> well, I mean, there are, there's a huge part of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ that deals with diplomacy. Uh, we refer to it as Amin Wufud, the year of the delegations after the conquest of Mecca and the return um, or in that time period to sort of the end of the Prophet's life, والسلام, him receiving all of these delegations from neighboring tribes. So how the Prophet والسلام, received those people and before that when the Prophet والسلام, wrote letters to all of the different rulers of the, of the area, uh, you know, the Muqawqas, Khosro, uh, Caesar, uh, the people of Oman, Bahrain, um, Egypt, the Najashi in Ethiopia, uh, Abyssinia, etc. Those are all our, the, the core examples, the first principle examples of how the Prophet ﷺ dealt with them, how he wrote his, his letters, the type of uh, characteristics that were found in his ambassadors. Uh, so he chose certain people for certain skill set. Either they looked the right, the right way, they spoke the language, they were diplomatic, etc. So he, just, he didn't send random sahaba. He sent people that, were, that had a special skill set. And one of those skill sets that I remember, uh, you know, essentially for all of them, is that they were patient. You know, being a diplomat is, is very taxing and requires copious amounts of patience uh, because when you, when you are representing a government or you're representing a, a nation or a policy or whatever... Usually you are representing it to, to, to people that are, that are different than you. You know, it's not, you're, you're, not, you're not preaching to the choir. You're trying to convert, as it were. Maybe that's not the right word <laughs> given our platform, but you're trying to win people over to your policy or, or to your agreement or something like that. That requires patience because there's, there's going to be a cultural barrier. Even between the Prophet والسلام, and, and neighboring nations, there were Arab, like an Amen. There was a very interesting... Uh, scenario. I think I believe he sent Amr ibn al-As, radiallahu anhu, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that's a very interesting story. Um, of course, Salah al-Din is, is another one of you know how how at a time of war and a time of aggression uh, and liberation of lands uh, was diplomacy and character carried uh, so much so that you know everyone knows that in the West, Salah al-Din or Saladin, as he's referred to in the West, is somebody who's praised as you know being very chivalrous and and uh, full of positive characters, characteristics. So even in the times of difficulty, there, it, it, there is an opportunity to express, um, to express diplomacy. So those are the, the type of things that come, come to mind that I think are just like low-hanging fruit. But I think the diplomacy can also be gleaned from the times of great political upheaval throughout Muslim history. So the collapse of Al-Andalus or the sacking of Baghdad or um, you know, the sacking of the Abbasid Caliphate or you know, these type of, of, of monumental and very momentous events, I personally benefit from the negative more than necessarily the positive. Like if I just like read a, a tome on you know, diplomacy, it wouldn't be as impactful as I learn from people's mistakes. Of course, you, you learn from the, the brilliance and the genius of, of certain people in history. But also the time of great upheaval, you see just sort of the systematic breakdown. And then I think you also learn. So I, that's something that I would also add is that's what I have found. Personally, I, I find that very beneficial. I remember I read this book called, um, I think it was called Defeating Japan. And it was, if, I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. 
and it was about Japan after the war, uh, embracing defeat. Sorry, it was called embracing defeat, uh, and it talks about you know how Japanese society and culture was transformed uh, with the loss of the war, World War II, central occupation of America of Japan, uh, until the handing over of the government uh, to to its native government. And it's transformed Japanese society ever ever since. And there was a part of it, it was that they had to embrace the fact that they lost. But there were certain things that they didn't lose. Uh, particularly when they talk about the, the king, or sorry, the emperor's announcement that he's not divine. And it wasn't, if you read the study, it wasn't as straightforward. They, they did not compromise. They were just very clever in how they worded it. So my point is that in defeat, in collapse, there are many lessons as well. So don't forget to look at those. Okay, how much approach discussions, if at all, non-Muslims or non-practicing, oh, how to approach, sorry, how to approach discussions, if at all, with non-Muslims or non-practicing family members? So, look, you have to understand that when you're in a family, you're handicapped because people look at you as a member of the family, first and foremost. So, uh, if you grew up and you were like the goof of the family, then you're always going to be the goof. If you grew up and you were the kid that always got in trouble, you're always going to get in trouble. If you grew up and you were you know, the slow kid, you're always going to be the slow kid. If you grew up and you were the smart kid, you're always going to be considered the smart kid. So you're, you're handicapped. So you have to understand that. And you can't take things personally. Just because you've had some personal growth, you can't, don't assume that people are going to want to hear about your personal growth. <laughs> so, you know, they just might tell you, just put a sock in it. You know, I don't want to hear you. And you can't take that personal. And because of that, my advice is to be the best version of yourself. You know, lead by character and lead by by your, your conduct. Uh, and that really kind of goes for all of us, I think, as well. This idea that dawah is like knocking on doors and let, let me you know, preach the good word. That's not really what dawah means, nor is it something that we're, we're, we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be the best versions of ourselves, and that should translate. That, that is going to speak volumes. When your neighbor, for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, consistently has nothing but positive interactions with you, that's going to be much more than if you gifted them the Qur'an. Much, much more. I mean, your non-Muslim neighbor. Why? Because it's very hard to be a neighbor and to be consistently good for that long. That means you're really a good person because you can only hide so much. So that don't underestimate the power of those examples. So I would only engage on matters of the deen and religion if it just comes up naturally in the context of like, I, you know, I might have an opinion on that or I have something to say. But I wouldn't be the person that always shows up and, you know, qala Allah wa qala Rasulullah sallallahu I mean, that's, that's like a buzzkill. People don't, 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 are not going to be receptive to that. So, you know, be natural, be yourself, but be the best version of yourself. Music. We did the music stuff. I divulged too much on the music questions. Those are the, so those are the remaining questions. So this is a little bit of a short episode. Um, on the questions, if there are questions that I didn't get to for whatever reason, um, and in compiling, maybe I kind of overlooked something, I apologize. Please reach out to me on social media. Uh, Instagram is probably the best place, but you know, I check everything, even LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc. You can also email me at info at makingsenseofislam.com, uh, and I'll pick up the questions in a further episode if I haven't. We'll leave it there, and I will see you soon for the next full episode, which I'll resume some of my interviews. I have some very interesting interviews in the pipeline. Until then, <clears throat> until then excuse me, be well, stay safe. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, 
I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up.